Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Grand Rounds. Uh, it's, it's great to be here with all of you. Hopefully, you're enjoying your cup of coffee, uh, getting a sense of fall coming in, leaves changing, uh, sense of optimism in many ways. And uh, you know, just thank you for hanging in there through the you know this difficult time. I think as a nation, we're making it through. Uh, good news here in Connecticut. Uh, uh, COVID is uh, uh, you know really coming under control. I've been very impressed with with the numbers, uh, the uh, uh, vaccination rates have gone up tremendously uh, and the uh, case rates have, have dropped. In fact, we're number one in the country for the lowest numbers of cases per 100,000, which is really a testament to everyone's uh, hard work. And hopefully with the pediatric vaccines coming our way, uh, things will continue to get better. I know the practices out there are getting ready uh, to vaccinate. Uh, we're eager to help everyone. We'll, set, we'll be setting up our own vaccination clinic here for those kids. Uh, age 5 to 11, who are at the highest risk that we follow. Uh, but I know that pediatricians are getting ready also. So please reach out to us as uh, this vaccine hopefully gets emergency use authorization, which will be the last step before the, 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 the real young kids get the vaccine uh, sometime in January, perhaps. But I feel we, we're making it through as a nation, as a hospital, and, uh, and I'm just so proud of uh, everything that you guys have done. Now, today we're going to uh, have uh, two of our star uh, faculty members uh, give you, uh, uh, I think it's going to be a very informative, and, and with them it's always a very outstanding Grand Rounds, I have no doubt. Uh, we have uh, Gary Lapidus and Brendan Campbell. Uh, they will be talking about geographic information system to advance child health research. Now, initially you're going to say, what is that? I think by the end of this, you'll be calling them to try to get their, uh, their software and use and, and program to actually be able to advance research. Now, all of you know uh, Gary and Brendan, uh, and Gary, you've, many of us have been here for a long time. He was actually, you know, even before I left and came back, um, and Gary uh, is uh, Associate Professor of Pediatrics. Uh, he's co-director of the Office of Advanced Practice, and he's also Director of Research Operations and Development. Uh, and in the past, was to, in, uh, you know, he's one of the founders of the Injury Prevention Center and has done an enormous amount of research in advancing the way we protect children in the state of Connecticut, really one of the most uh, influential people in the Department of Pediatrics in terms of advancing the care of children. So, you know, just very proud. And unfortunately, now I have his offices right next to mine here at 10 Columbus, and I'm able to pick his brain and ask him good things and uh, always uh, greets you with a smile and uh, just the uh, excellence in all that he does. And, and of course, he's also uh, uh, the, the other speakers, uh, Dr. Brendan Campbell, that all of you know, uh, one of the most outstanding pediatric surgeons that I've ever known. Uh, and he is the director of trauma here at Connecticut Children's and also an associate professor at pediatrics and surgery. Uh, and I put pediatrics first, uh, Brendan, because, you know, pediatrics is so important, but I know it's both. And so it's, and it's an honor to have you in the Department of Pediatrics as well. Uh, he is a champion in pediatric surgical quality and safety. And uh, it, it's really amazing to... Uh, on on the Thursday once a month when they, they have uh, Dr. Fink holds the, uh, the the pediatric surgical quality committee of you know the things that the way Brendan approaches it 
with with excellence, uh, with, with really scholarship and and with care uh, to, to make sure that we provide the best care when our surgical specialty is nothing less than remarkable. Uh, he is a champion for uh, safety for children. He's been featured in a number of uh, national news recently in one of the, I think it was NBC, uh, one of the nightly news. And so, you know, here's your, you're listening to uh, President Biden and others, and then suddenly Brendan appears on TV. So he, you know, another celebrity that we have here uh, as part of our team. So with uh, without further ado, I'm going to ask. Uh, I think Gary starts first, uh, and then Dr. Campbell, and then we'll have time for questions at the end. It's really an honor to have you both, and please uh, join me here at the podium. Well, thank you, Juan, for that kind introduction. I have no disclosures, but would certainly like to acknowledge the great help I got from Aaron Adams, who's a PhD student at the Department of Geography, UConn, and Cindy Zhang, also from the Department of Geography at UConn, they contributed terrific ideas and content for this talk. My learning objectives are to describe the history of medical geography, to understand GIS technology and its applications across many disciplines, including health and safety, and to describe our new UConn GIS Health Lab at Connecticut Children's and how it is being utilized to advance child health research. I'd like to uh, go back in time and give you a snapshot of how I actually got involved in this work. And um, I landed in November of 1953 at 2.30 Mount Vernon Place in Newark, New Jersey. And I lived there with my family in the Ivy Hill Apartments. And we didn't have, we were a modest background family. We didn't have much cash in our pockets, but we had a lot of wealth. And the wealth was due to the fact that my parents loved and cared for each other, and us kids felt safe and protected. Now, fast forward 10 years, we've moved down the road to Colonia, New Jersey. Here's our gang. At the time, there was a very popular television show called Our Gang, The Little Rascals. And this was our version of The Little Rascals. And we were out running around the neighborhood making mischief and mayhem. Sometimes we get away with it. Sometimes we get caught. We got caught. We got scolded by our parents and the principal, vice principal. One time they sent me to the school nurse to get some counseling. But as part of all this, running around, I would always get lost many times. Instead of where's Waldo is where's Gary. And my good friends, Ricky DeLugash, otherwise known as Big Dell, we all had nicknames. They'd come out and find me. One time, Jimmy Pots and Pans, who was always in the kitchen, had to come out of the kitchen and find me. And this was going on over and over again. And my parents became increasingly concerned. And they said, well, we got we to gotta straighten this boy out. So they recommended that I join the Boy Scouts. And I said, OK. And I learned a lot of life lessons. And one of the great things that happened to me was I learned how to use a compass and read a map. And I grew to love maps and compasses. And I was able to find my way in the mountains and in the forest by following a white blaze on the trees and on the rocks. And that love of geography and maps stayed with me. And fast forward now, I'm 30 years old, it's 1983. I'm a young physician assistant interested in injuries. I look around my pediatric ward and many of the children there that were admitted 
were there for so-called accidents, but they weren't accidents. They were predictable and preventable injuries. And I became to learn and understand the science of injury prevention, which was based in public health and epidemiology. And we wanted to learn and understand the frequency and patterns of injuries. So we began to ask who was being injured? What were their ages, their gender, their race, ethnicity? When did the injury occur? Time of the day, day of the week, month of the year? How did the injury occur? What was the cause? Motor vehicle crash, occupant, pedestrian, fall, burn, poisoning, drowning, violence? What were the circumstances? Were there alcohol and drug use? Were children wearing protective devices like helmets? Or were they restrained in, in the cars using seatbelts and car seats? And also, we sought to understand where the injury occurred. And at the time, people would categorize them into broad categories. Well, it occurred at school, it occurred on the street, it occurred on the playground. But I sought to learn more. And way back in the early 90s, I discovered geographic information systems. And at the time in Hartford, many children were being struck by motor vehicles. So I went down to the police department at the time, it was on 80 Jennings Road, and I formed a partnership with them. And I said, can you help me understand child pedestrian injury? They allowed me access to the police motor vehicle reports. And there were three addresses with each motor vehicle collision. There was a child's home address, the driver's home address, and the exact location where children were being struck. And we mapped this out using these crude maps, and we found hotspots on Albany Avenue and Park Street. And we brought this information to the city, we brought this information to community groups, and we were able to promote change in, in particularly the road environment with, with uh, traffic calming techniques, speed bumps, and the like. We also used GIS to help guide a community-based smoke detector campaign. I went into the Hartford Fire Department and requested fire data from them. And we mapped out house fires that were occurring in the city of Hartford and those homes that did not have a working smoke detector. And we found that they clustered in certain census blocks and census tracts. So we mobilized the fire department and fire explorers and went street to street with a community-based smoke detector campaign. And we published that work as well. We also examined the impact of concrete barriers, so-called Jersey barriers in urban crime using GIS. At the time, there was a lot of cr crime in some of the city's uh, housing departments like Nelton Court, Bellevue Square. And the thought was they put down these Jersey barriers to try to reduce urban crime. And what we found was that the barrier decreased violent crime, but just displaced the drug crime to surrounding areas of the public housing project. So over the next few minutes, what I'll do is define some of the terms and definitions that we use in geography and GIS. I'll go back in history and discuss the history of mapping diseases, particularly the 1854 cholera epidemic in London. I'll describe GIS systems. I'll provide some applications of GIS, malaria, COVID, climate change. And then I'll discuss our new GIS health lab and of course, at the end, I'll invite my good friend and colleague, Dr. Campbell, to discuss his important work of firearm violence using Hartford Police Department shot spotter data and GIS. So here's some definitions. Medical geography is the study of how disease and health are distributed across the health. 
the Earth. Closely related to this is health geography, which is the application of geographical information, perspectives, and methods to study health, disease, and healthcare. And it does explore patterns of causes and spread of disease, environmental hazards, environmental mediators of health behaviors, and the planning and provision of health services. So early work in this area was done by the great Dr. John Snow, who was a physician in London in 1853 and 1858. And you can see his picture. And to the right is the Broad Street pump. And what he was able to do was map out cholera cases that was just devastating Europe and in, and in particular London. And he mapped out the cases of cholera and he found that the cases clustered around that pump. And he removed the pump handle and the cholera epidemic abated. A terrific case of public health work. Now here's a very famous map. It's a flow map of Menard's map of the French invasion of Russia. And Menard is best known for his cartographic depiction of numerical data of Napoleon's disastrous losses during the Russian campaign of 1812. And this illustration depicts Napoleon's army departing the Polish-Russian border. The thick band illustrates the size of his army at specific geographic points during their advance and then their retreat. And it displays six types of data in two dimensions. The number of Napoleon's troops, the distance traveled, temperature, latitude, longitude, the direction of travel, location, relative to, to specific dates, without ever mentioning Napoleon. And Menard's interest lay with the travails and the sacrifices of his soldiers. So what is GIS? GIS is a computer system designed to input, store, edit, retrieve, analyze, and output geographic data and information. GIS connects data to a map, integrating location data, where things are, with all types of descriptive information, what things are like there. And it provides a foundation for mapping and analysis using science in many industries. It helps us understand patterns, relationships, and geographic context. And the benefits include improved communication and efficiency, as well as better management and decision-making. The way this is organized, you have points like the address of our hospital at 282 Washington Street, or lines like Interstate 84, or polygons like the city of Hartford Boundary. And attached to those points, lines, and polygons are information. Like we know that 282 is a hospital with 187 beds. Interstate highway goes across our state and is 97.9 miles. And the city of Hartford has a population of around 123,000. GIS integrates data, like encounter data, visits and missions, program data, demographics, patients utilization. It has, you can, in, input administrative boundaries like census blocks and tracks, neighborhoods, districts, service areas, and the like. You can include infrastructure information like roads, buildings, parks, and recreation, facilities and service like police, fire, and EMS. You could have clinics and hospitals, daycare centers, and schools. 
And you could also lay in environmental factors and features, wetlands, topographic information, biohazards, toxic sites, and the like. And you could include all this information, social factors, biodiversity, engineering, land use, and environmental considerations. And it measures and it integrates all this to visualize the whole thing. And how does it do it? It's like a great chocolate cake. There's layers, right? And each layer has information. And all that is put together into a terrific layer cake. And one of the great scientists that moved this forward was Dr. Waldo Tobler, who wrote in 1959 and published Automation and Cartography. And his innovation classified as computerized cartography set the stage for early GIS. And he also described the first law of geography, which you see in that little diagram to the right. Everything is related to everything else, but near things are more related than distant things. In 1963, the first true GIS was developed by Roger Tomlinson to assist the Canadian government with monitoring and managing the country's natural resources. And Roger Tomlinson is considered the father of modern GIS. In 1965, the Harvard Laboratory for Computer Graphics and Spatial Analysis was founded, and this lab had a major impact on the field, in the field. And in 1985, Monomer had this famous quote, in the decades ahead, though the digital map will displace the paper map from its dominant position. Now here's a nice illustration of how GIS can help us understand malaria. As we know, early medicine studied the differences in diseases experienced by people living at low versus high elevations. Those living at low elevations near waterways would be more prone to malaria than those at higher elevations or in drier, less humid areas. Now here's a map of South America 2019 that shows the distribution of malaria. And you can see those areas that are colored in blue and yellow have higher frequencies of malaria. But let's get into this a little bit more. Here's a map of South America that shows elevation meters above sea level. The white areas are higher elevations, the darker areas lower. Here's a map that shows average annual rainfall or precipitation in South America. The darker areas again have more rainfall. Dr. Salazar knows all about this because he lives in Colombia. Average annual temperature in South America. Again, the darker areas are in dark orange with higher temperatures. So which factor or factors seem to be most closely related to malaria? Elevation, rainfall, temperature? So through our science and research, we now know that temperature impacts vector and parasite development, and thus is an important constraint on the geographical, geographical suitability of malaria. We know that the extrinsic development of the parasite is constrained with a certain temperature range. Extremely high temperatures are likely to produce smaller and less fecund mosquitoes. 
and increasing temperature reduces the time for mosquito maturation and increase the feeding frequency. And we also know that the frequency, duration, intensity of precipitation contribute to the form formation of suitable water habitats for mosquito breeding. And there are a lot of fields that make use of GIS. They're listed here, banking, insurance, real estate, retail, manufacturing, transportation. All of these fields are using GIS to advance their work. Electric and gas utilities, petroleum pipeline companies, natural resource companies, water utilities, architecture, engineering, construction use GIS, telecommunications, public safety like police, fire, EMS, and even health and human services use GIS to advance their work. Now here's a spreadsheet that shows Houston, Texas households without a vehicle. Just a spreadsheet with information. But when you transform that to a map, you can see the darker areas have, are households that, have, that are less likely to have a vehicle. Now, why is this important? Because Houston, guess what, is prone to a lot of severe weather and storms. And if you need to evacuate people, this information shown on a map can show very clearly where you need to position buses to get people out safe, safely. Here's a map from 2018 and 19 that shows by state the high school graduation rates. There are two states that have high school graduation rates less than 80%. Most states, 40, have high school graduates between 80 and 90%, and eight states have graduation rates greater than 90%. In our own work here at Connecticut Children's, here's a slide that shows all completed ambulatory visits for fiscal year 19, 2019. There were over 95,000 visits, and you can use this technology to show that our patients and families on average are coming about, the mean is 15.4 miles traveling to us and the median 10.5 for ambulatory visits. You could also do very cool drive time analysis to see how far our patients have to drive to come to 282. 14% less than 10 minutes, about 25% 10 to 20 minutes. 25%, 20, 30 minutes, 30, almost 37% over 30 minutes. This has been very important in driving our work to get provide clinics and offices in different locations so they're closer to home to receive care. Here's a map that shows the percent of land area in farms in 2007. Only about a fifth of the United States has land suitable for farming. GIS has been applied to criminology, and here's a several maps that show violent crime compared to urban living, education, and poverty. That blue map shows violent crime and the percent of population living in an urban environment. The, the map that's orange-red shows violent crime and the percent of population with a high school degree. And the green map there shows violent crime, percent of population living in poverty. So all of these factors can be integrated. So we have a, a deeper and clearer understanding of what's happening. Now, you'll notice in this slide that 
that the, that the data is changing, 2008, 9, 2010. This is showing opioid dispensing rates per 100,000 people from 2006 to 2019. And as we get closer to 2019, you see the colors of the map changing more towards yellow with less dispensing rates. So that's good. Things are getting better. Another powerful example of how GIS can help us understand the important opioid epidemic. Historically, I've used uh, GIS mapping to help understand injury. And here's a map that shows all injury rates, death rates by state, 2008 to 2014. And you can see that there's variation across our country in injury death rates, particularly in the South and the Mountain West. You could just isolate and map out motor vehicle occupants. And if you look in the New England region, you could see the state of Maine and Vermont have higher death rates due to motor vehicle occupant deaths. Now, why is that? There are reasons. Part of it has to do with speed, vehicle speed. Part of it has to do is access to level one trauma centers where people can get definitive care. I've long been interested in the issue of motorcycle injury. And you can see how motorcycle injury death rates vary by state. Look across the South, well, that's a more temperate environment and more people are likely to ride throughout the whole season. You see high death rates there, but also you could use mapping and spatial analysis to look at motorcycle helmet laws. Now there are um, uh, 18 states, oops, sorry, let me go back. There are, the green states have, have um, a universal helmet law covering all riders. 29 states, which are blue like us, have a partial law that's tied to an age in our state. If you're older than eight, 18 or older, it's optional. And there are three states, Iowa, Illinois, and New Hampshire, that have no law. And we know that helmet laws, guess what, act exactly like a vaccine. You pass a universal helmet law, all riders, you get 99% compliance, death rates go down. You repeal the law, you take away the vaccine, death rates go up. We'll hear a lot more from Dr. Campbell about gun injuries and, and firearm violence. But again, here's a map of the United States by state, and you can see variation. The darker states have more firearm deaths than other states. And a lot of that is tied to uh, uh, gun ownership in the home. Those states that have higher gun ownership have higher death rates. And now we're able to use this powerful technology to better understand the COVID epidemic. Here's a map that shows the average daily rate of COVID cases among persons living in community settings in our state. The darker areas have higher rates. And Steve, if you want to hit the button here, you're going to have about a two or three minute description of dashboard for perhaps the UConn. first time in history geographers epidemiologists and other data scientists have been able to map a pandemic in close to real time they've been able to use this information to communicate to policymakers and to the general public so that the situation within their communities is better understood now one of the dominant formats that's emerged to communicate this information have been dashboards. 
uh, dashboards were popularized largely by John Hopkins University using a dashboard format to create their visualization of global COVID-19 cases. This dashboard here is uh, created and hosted by the Department of Geography at UConn. Here we show data by town in the state of Connecticut, which is a little bit unique that Connecticut publishes its data by town rather than county or zip code like many of the other states do in the United States. So here we see a lot of information. We have panels to the left and right. The left shows total confirmed cases. This is since the beginning of the pandemic and then increase in cases as of previous day, 411 new cases. Total deaths, 8,666, and 16 new deaths as of the previous day. We have here deaths per 100,000 people by age, which shows that uh, by and large, the people 80 and up have been uh, overwhelmingly affected by COVID-19. And here in the central data frame, we see a map of COVID-19 vaccination rates. So this was updated on September 29th, 2021, because that's how often the state of Connecticut publishes their data. This video is being produced October 5th, 2021. So this is relatively uh, recent. So here we have dark blue would be people 70 to 100% and light would be 35 to 40%. Here uh, we gave green stars to any town that had over 70% vaccination to show that it was um, reaching or getting close to herd immunity. So while this data frame was limited by how fast uh, data is being published uh, to September 29th, you can see here that the data dashboard was last updated at um, October 5th, 2021 at 6.30 p.m. So there are a number of other data frames and visualizations available. So here we have daily incidence rate by age group per 100,000 people. So you can see how COVID-19 cases are broken down by age and what the number of people infected uh, by COVID-19 look like. So you'd know what group is being impacted, so that might be able to inform a policymaker. Here, we have case rates per 10,000 people in the past 14 days. Now, it's important that we use the past 14 days because if we were to map the data since the beginning of the pandemic, we would lose any pattern that's emerging and be unable to understand what the current situation is in our community. We also map by 10,000 people. It's important when you're using Coropleth maps to normalize your data. That is a problem that has been uh, ignored by many uh, government and other institutions dashboards. So here you can see uh, darker red is more COVID-19 cases, a higher case rate. And the northeastern portion of Connecticut seems to be currently having a little bit more COVID-19 cases. Here we have a YouTube video. This YouTube video shows Connecticut uh, COVID-19 vaccine status, and it shows how the vaccine uh, distribution rolled out for each one of the towns, where yellow would be people's first dose, green would be fully vaccinated, and uh, this coral color is the unvaccinated population. Unfortunately, as you can now see, uh, after June and July, it really slowed down. We saw a big push in the beginning uh, where a large portion of the state was being vaccinated, and now there's a lot of hesitancy, and these numbers aren't changing that much from one week to the next. 
in this uh, data frame, we can see uh, total COVID-19 cases since the beginning. So here you see that there is a completely different picture. This is a proportional symbol map, which is able to show the total cases. And you can see that it closely matches uh, the population. If we were to not normalize this data or only publish from the beginning, the north uh, eastern portion of the state pattern that we are seeing emerge now would be completely hidden in this map. So it's important that you have both data sets available when you're a decision maker or trying to understand what the pattern of COVID is in Connecticut. And here, closely matching the distribution of cases, we have the total deaths in the state of Connecticut. Now, this graph here is showing COVID-19 cases, daily hospitalizations, and deaths since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, since we started having data published, which was back in March of 2020. So you can see very distinct um, surges and dips within the COVID-19 pattern. And just like before, here we have the past 14 days, giving you a better idea of what's currently happening in the state. And now back to the mainframe. Now, these dashboards have been extremely useful in communicating COVID-19 data to the general public and to policymakers, but they can be useful for other things as well. And I expect to see them used uh, for a number of other applications long after COVID-19 is just an unhappy memory. Uh, these dashboards are a very useful and 21st century way of doing cartography. For perhaps the first time in history, geographers, epidemiologists, and other data scientists have been able to... Thank you. GIS also has been very helpful in helping us understand what's going on with climate change and the global, global climate risk. And here's a map that shows all the different variations what's happening across our world wildfires droughts extreme heat floods hurricanes now if we can click on this nasa has a climate time machine illustrations that show a series of visualizations that show some of the earth's key climate indicators so if you could click on global temperature so here's a slide that shows drought conditions um, in june of this year the Forest Service has used GIS to document and illustrate the impact of wildfires across our country. And also what's very new and exciting is that compared to when we started, my, at least I started this work in the 90s, the, the software and the, and the sophistication of the software has gotten much stronger. We now have spatial statistics that we could use to better understand the work. And there are three that I'll briefly describe, hotspot analysis, sat scan, space time clusters, and geographically weighted regression. So hotspot analysis is one of the most commonly used and easy to understand methods for displaying spatial statistics. And in this map, areas of blue have lower COVID-19 rates, where areas in red have higher the darkness of the color represents how confident we are that the town is either a hot or a cold spot. And the hotspot map shows the distribution of COVID cases that changed before and after the power outage of last year's tropical storm Isaias, which was last year, last uh, August. Before the tropical storm Isaias, there was a cold spot 
in the western portion of the state, including several towns. Another useful statistic is SAT-scanned space-time clusters. Let me explain. These have been used extensively when mapping COVID-19. It takes into account population, cases, time, and space. And it is possible to identify areas where people are at greater relative risk than surrounding towns. The risk is calculated based on how severe the cases are compared to the town and the study area. Purple circles show clusters of statistically significant outbreaks. So if you look at the map on the left, the largest cluster is in the northeast corner of the state before the outage with, with other smaller clusters in the west and southwest. The map in the middle is during the outage and there's a large cluster in the northeast that is still visible. And the map on the right, it shows what happened after the outage with new clusters that have emerged in the south, southeastern portion of the state. Another useful tool is geographically weighted regression. As, it name, as its name implies, this regression analysis takes the geographic position of variables into account. A geographically weighted regression is used to try and find explanatory variables for some observed spatial pattern. And in this example, a community would have a map showing crime. A geographer would take an empty feature class like the boundary of the city of Hartford and add in a first explanatory variable like population and maybe a second like income. And it would combine it with as many variables as you wanted. And ultimately it would produce a model similar to what is observed in reality, identifying the underlying variables so they could be understood and ultimately addressed by decision makers. Briefly want to touch on now our collaboration with the Department of Geography. It started in the 1990s. We formed a partnership with then department chair, Dr. Robert Cromley and his wife, Dr. Ellen Cromley. We had their students with us. Here's a list of all the students. And more recently, when I took on the role of director of research operation development, I saw that we had no, no spatial analysis capacity. So one of the first things I tried to do was say, can we change this? Can we bring on GS capacity? And I explored the collaboration between us and the Department of Geography. And our new lab was established, which is a new and powerful service that builds on this historical collaboration. And it leverages this, the unique strengths of each institution. Both of us are dedicated to students, training, advancing the understanding of health inequities, seeking and contributing to solutions, and enhancing research activities. We would benefit by expanding our cap capability to model geographic health data, and also continue our history of policy initiatives and research using GIS. UConn Geography Department would benefit from the addition of health-related student internships and collaborative opportunities for GIS and health research. UConn Geography has a robust degree and training programs. They offer bachelor's degrees, master's, PhD degrees in geography and GIS. They have courses listed here. 
And importantly, they have scientists, geographers, and GIS trained at the doctoral level, people like Dr. Cindy Shang and Peter Chen and Deb Gosh, who are now our partners in this. They want to help us with our work, and that's a terrific thing. We now have access to state-of-the-art GIS software. So the way this works is Yukon Geography provides a PhD student with us 10 hours a week. This PhD student helped train us. We had about eight, or eight of us that went through a training program. If we need other undergraduate students, we can tap, tap them and get them in. And as I mentioned, we have access to the software. We have regular research meetings to discuss current and proposed joint research activities. And all this was formalized with a MOU signed describing the activities and roles and responsibilities of both parties. And we're now able to apply this technology and analysis capacity in several areas. Firearm violence with Dr. Campbell. We will begin an analysis of the youth suicide screening data in our emergency department. Our great cardiologists, Brooke Davy and Olga Salazar, said, hey, what about us? Let's take a look at congenital heart disease and spatial analysis. And our hospitalist, Dr. Alex Hogan, is planning to apply this knowledge and technology to COVID-19. And I now would like to invite my good colleague and friend, Dr. Campbell, to explain his work in gun violence. Thanks very much, Gary. I'm just going to um, take a couple of minutes to talk a little bit about some of the work we're doing on gun violence. But first, I, I just want to really uh, jump on the coattails of what Dr. Salazar had said uh, about Gary's work in this area. I mean, it's been very uh, valuable, not only the work we've done at the Injury Prevention Center, but now with the GIS lab and our institutional focus on population health and making Connecticut's children the safest in the country. Uh, it's going to allow us to uh, do even more in that area. So just briefly on, on gun injury, it's something that we've been interested in in the city of Hartford for a long time. We've been working collaboratively with the other trauma centers in the city, city the Hartford police, the mayor's office. Uh, this is just a picture from one of the gun buybacks that we've been holding in December for the last uh, 10 plus years. So I, I think what's important to know, and this is a medical summit that the American College of Surgeons held two years ago in Chicago, where uh, 41 uh, organizations, including medical organizations, but also the American Bar Association got together and said, what can we do to lower the incidence and prevent the devastating consequences of firearm injury? And if you look to the right of the scene, of the screen, you'll see that uh, social determinants in health are, are one important uh, area of that, as well as hospital-based violence intervention programs. This is a, a project called ISAVE, Improving Social Determinants to Attenuate Violence, which is, is a pretty unique and progressive approach that the American College of Surgeons has taken. And, uh, and GIS fits into that. And I'll just give you a brief example here of one of the projects that we're working on. So 
through our collaboration with the Hartford Police Department, we've seen hotspots or clusters of areas where gun violence occurs. You can see, not surprisingly, the north end of Hartford uh, and Frog Hollow, uh, as well as just south of uh, uh, the Children's Hospital here, there are areas where we have an increase uh, or we, we see a, a higher incidence of firearm discharges. And basically, just a little bit about ShotSpotter for those of you who may not uh, know about it. It's an acoustic detection technology that basically has, has uh, devices throughout the city which monitor these sounds. And they can distinguish between uh, the backfire on a car muffler and fireworks and really pick up discharges of firearms that occur out of doors. And it localizes it down to within a couple of meters. And it allows police to respond to these events, many of which are not reported uh, through the 911 system uh, and uh, has been very effective. And for, for the last several years, the almost the entire city of Hartford is covered with this technology. So when we were looking at this more recently and, and trying to figure this out, we basically um, created hotspots by census block. And, and I think the the purpose of this side is just to, 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 to point out how many actual shootings and rounds are fired in the city of Hartford. In 2020, there were 858 distinct shootings and over 7,000 rounds of ammunition fired, which is really extraordinary since it's illegal to discharge firearms in the city of Hartford. What we're interested in primarily is the impact that this has on children in the city of Hartford throughout the state of Connecticut, really in the, the region, but what we're really concerned about Hartford. And if you map these hotspots and, and overlay it upon where daycare centers and schools are, you can see those uh, blue uh, and yellow triangles that there are schools and daycare centers that are having um, firearms discharged all around them in the city of Hartford. And just a couple of things here, uh, to point out, we, we looked at this over time, which is trend analysis is critical because, you know, things aren't static. We need to see how things change over time. And what you see in the bar graph on the lower part of the slide is you see a pretty steady, steady fluctuation of uh, the number of discharges. But then when the pandemic started in early 2020, you see a significant increase in the number of firearm discharges uh, within uh, 100 meters of schools in the city of and daycare centers in the city of Hartford. And I, I think what's important is what's the significance of this? Well, the significance of this is we have seen a 300% increase in the number of victims of, of gun violence that we've treated in our emergency department uh, and operated on in our operating room. So this is a real problem. And this GIS technology allows us to study it uh, in, in greater detail. And, and, and based on those data, we can determine what injury prevention policy uh, measures might be able to allow us to affect change in this problem, which has been plaguing our country for decades. I'm going to turn it back over to Gary, and then we'd be happy to take any questions. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Campbell. So I wanted to go back to where I started, which was, uh, you know, my own personal story of of getting lost all the time and how I, through some education and gentle handholding, that is less likely to happen now. And I do believe that uh, with this technology, 
the spatial analysis of GIS. It's a very, very useful tool for us. And it will help inform our research and it will help us inform our prevention programs and policies. In conclusion, what I've tried to do is share with you the history of this field, the history of medical geography, of health geography. As Esri says, which is the software company that pr produces ArcGIS, it's the science of where. And now we have more capacity to study the science of where with GIS. And we've been able to do this through a terrific partnership with our colleagues at the University of Connecticut Department of Geography. We have established the UConn GIS Health Lab at Connecticut Children's. And what we've done this morning is showed you some examples of how it's being utilized and how it will be utilized to advance child health research. So I want to thank you all for tuning in. And both Dr. Campbell and I would be happy to take any questions or comments. Thank you, uh, Gary and Brendan. Uh, truly fascinating, fascinating software and, and utilization for this uh, new modality. I guess it's not new, you know, since it comes all the way back from, uh, from the cholera epidemic uh, in, in London, where, where they actually used this, perhaps to find the actual source of, 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 of the bacteria. Um, we have a, a comment from Dr. Kamaitis, and it says, uh, Gary and Brendan, thank you for our most interesting lecture. I always learn a great deal from you. So that was from Dr. Kamaitis. The other uh, Dr. Torres, the other Dr. Salazar, which is really Dr. Torres Salazar, is asking if there are any any confidentiality restrictions with the GIS software if, as it relates to patients. If you if you gather zip code from Epic, for instance, and, and connect it with with diagnosis, is is there a HIPAA issue related to the software? Can you comment on that? Yes. Yeah. Great question. Uh, so the answer is yes. So we, we need to be aware of the confidentiality issues. And certainly, uh, sometimes we have the exact street address of whether it be patients or where, where injuries occur or an, where an infection occurs. And the general rule of thumb is you have to disaggregate that information into a larger geographic space, typically at the census tract level. And if you have less than a certain number of cases within a geographic area, again, typically less than 10 or 20, then you need to blind that. Because what you don't want to do is compromise confidentiality and have somebody look at a map and say, oh, I know where that person lives, or I know who this person is. So great, great question. It's, it's a very important part of our work. Great. Um, uh, thank you, Gary. The, the other question that, uh, that comes up is related to uh, utilizing, you know, these maps that, in, in a way that, that, in some way, could lead to potentially to uh, discrimination and isolation. Uh, you know, it reminds me of, uh, uh, you know, in, back in the 1940s and 50s. You know, you know, with the great, with, with the New Deal, there were cities were color mapped, um, it, and depending on the color, there were certain places where would be considered high end, low end, and low, and, and that led to, to, to really the projects and, 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 you know, putting people in specific areas that uh, ultimately led to discrimination that ultimately, you know, Lyndon Johnson in the 60s then, uh, you know, passed legislation that, that really prohibited 
um, you know, bias depending on race. And so, so is it, what are the protections, you know, when you, obviously information is information, but what are the protections for that GIS information that it doesn't lead to discrimination or to, uh, uh, you know, clustering of people in situations that you don't go there? You know, I can think of it, the North End, you know, you, you, you hear, you and Brendan, you presented the, the data on the, on, the, on the gunshots in the North End. Uh, how, how do we make sure that that doesn't become something that ultimately discriminates against locations or people in those areas? Yeah, and that, that speaks to the issue of balance. And you're right. I mean, maps and information can be used to help us understand and advance our understanding, but it also can be misused and it can be used to harm people. So again, I think that's part of the ethics that we all are aware of in science and in research, and particularly how it can be used to benefit and highlight areas of need, but also at the same, at the same time being very cognizant of its ability to, to um, provide, I would say, a dark picture or a discriminatory picture. So it comes down, I think, to ethics. Good question. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Um, I, I, I forgot to say this in the beginning, but this is uh, PA week, Physician Assistant Week. So. Uh, Gary, to you and your and your colleagues, uh, we want to wish you a, a fantastic week and uh, uh, gratitude for everything that that you do uh, for our patients and for us. And and so please, if you uh, if you see your favorite uh, physician assistant this week, uh, give him a uh, a virtual hug or a COVID compliant hug if you may, if you can. Well, thank uh, you for that acknowledgement. I, you know, when we opened in 1996, there were about less than 20 advanced practice providers, APPs, PAs, in our great nurse practitioner colleagues. Now, fast forward, there's about 180 of us in 37 different uh, clinical divisions. In our NICU, we have 37, about 37 APPs in the ED where I work, about 20. And so we are a vital part of the workforce, working alongside our great physicians, surgeons, nurses, techs, therapists. So we're very pleased to be here and we, and we hope to continue our growth throughout the institution. Great, thank you. Uh, there are no further questions here in the chat, so uh, thank you for you know truly an outstanding presentation. Uh, we're honored to have you both uh, as part of our team. Uh, I want to remind everyone that uh, on October 19th we'll have the honorary uh, Bob Greenstein lecture. Uh, it's called the Cutaneous and the Acute Telotuporphyrius, and uh, Dr. Bill Bruckner, who is a former resident, MD, PhD, uh, trained in Boston Children's, now at Hasbro Children's Hospital, will be. Uh, giving uh, a talk. He's always uh, an outstanding speaker, you know, very, uh, very fun to listen to. So do join us. Um, I, I was also reminded by, by Liz and, and Nicole that there's a new way to register uh, for Grand Rounds. And they, they, I think they put it on the chat, uh, how to get the, the EADS register at www.eeds.com portal uh, for the recurrent event. And uh, I tried it just now while I was listening and it's pretty easy. So even if I could do it, you guys can, everyone can do it. Uh, so, Brendan uh, and Gary, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, uh, next Friday, we have Ask the Experts. Next Friday, I think everyone's eagerly awaiting for that. All right, take care, be safe, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at connecticutchildrens.org slash podcast slash grand-rounds.